Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. This is a podcast show where we invite scholars, policymakers, and business executives to share their unique insights on policy-related issues in our world today. I am Princeton sophomore Tiger Gao. Today, I actually want to turn to a subject that is so important in today's policy discussion, but hasn't actually been mentioned yet on Policy Punchline. It's trade. As you may know, President Trump has been waging trade wars against other countries from China to EU, from Mexico to Canada. And the trade negotiations between China and the U.S. just resumed uh, again on February 21st, with both sides focused on reaching a deal before um, the March 1st deadline. Now, I know the deadline has already been passed and China and U.S. are making great progress But still, if no deal was reached by March 1st, we would have seen the 10% tariffs rise to 25% for the $200 billion Chinese imports to the U.S. So it's quite a pivotal moment in the China-U.S. relations, but also uh, in international trade. There's so much news and information thrown on us every day about the trade war, and we really need some clarity about the subject matters. That's why... I'm so excited to introduce our guest for today's show, Ambassador Michael Froman. Ambassador Froman is currently the Vice Chairman and President of Strategic Growth at MasterCard. He served in President Obama's cabinet as the U.S. Trade Representative from 2013 to 2017. Uh, some of the major initiatives under his leadership, uh, including the, the conclusion of Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, TPP, and the negotiations toward a transatlantic trade and investment partnership with the European Union, which we call it TTIP. Before joining President Obama's cabinet, Ambassador Froman was also the Chief of Staff and Deputy Assistant Secretary at the Treasury Department under President Clinton's administration, and then at Citigroup as CEO of its international insurance business, among other roles. So it's a great pleasure for us to have Ambassador Froman in the show today. And today is actually the first time we're introducing the video component to our Policy Punchline production. So if you're listening on iTunes or SoundCloud, you can check out the video of our interview on policypunchline.com. But I also have to apologize uh, that the quality of this interview might be less than average uh, compared to other episodes you may listen to. So here's our interview with Ambassador Froman. Ambassador Froman, so you had such a diverse range of experiences across the public and private sectors. It's virtually impossible for me to name all the titles and positions and experiences you've had. So why don't we begin the interview with the with your favorite title ever, or the favorite position or experience you've ever had, and we'll, we'll go from there. <laughs> well, I think the, uh, first of all, I've, I've had the blessing of actually loving every job I've had. I've never had a job that I didn't uh, enjoy, which is a, a true uh, privilege. I have to say, um, maybe my favorite job was uh, after graduating law school, my wife and I, we were just newlyweds, uh, we moved to Albania and we shared a job. Uh, we worked for the American Bar Association and provided legal technical assistance to the new democratically elected government there after about six months in the country and it was living off of the economy, you know, water for a couple hours a day, not much food uh, in the country to, uh, to, to get. But the most fun part, of course, was working with my wife and sharing a job. It was a great way to, to start off our marriage. Totally makes sense. Yes. So you were the U.S. Trade Representative mm-hmm. um, under President Obama. That's a 
title everybody could recognize these days, given how trade frequently appears on the news now. How do the trade negotiations usually usually happen? Would you mind giving us some sort of insider perspective on the on the? So trade negotiations are incredibly detail oriented and complicated. Uh, what I love about trade is that it combines the high politics of foreign policy and national security. You're dealing with other countries, with foreign ministers and trade ministers. You're dealing with the very highest levels, oftentimes at the head of state level, in diplomatic efforts. But it combines that with a very granular understanding of the U.S. economy and domestic politics. And so to be a good trade negotiator, you have to learn about the dairy industry and sugar and footwear and apparel and technology and manufacturing and understand really what the dynamics are of those uh, industries, but also what the political dynamic is around those industries and who cares about them in Congress, um, how that interaction goes, the relationship between importers and exporters. So it's that combination of really getting an understanding of the domestic economy and political situation along with the, the diplomatic effort. And I guess one of the key phrases, as we were just talking about trade, has been really on the news these days because President Trump has started so many trade, whether we call it conflicts or renegotiations or wars with EU, Canada, Mexico, China, Japan. And I guess why did we see the, the eruption of trade conflict on such a global scale um, in 2018, 2017? Is it only because President Trump's election or was it some sort of accumulation of systemic political reasons? I don't think it's just because of President Trump's election. It is an area that he's had a long-standing interest in uh, and a very consistent set of uh, views on, uh, but he tapped into uh, some underlying concern about, and, and quite legitimate concern, about the nature of the evolution of the labor market and of jobs, uh, wage suppression, that there have not been wage increases for some time, uh, widening income inequality, now, economists will tell you, most econ virtually every economist will tell you, 80% of the impact on jobs and wages comes from technology. Uh, but there is a portion that comes from globalization. The, the challenge is people conflate globalization and trade agreements or trade policy or trade negotiations. Globalization is, is a fact of life. It's a force. It's actually the product of technology itself. The continuization of shipping in the 1960s fundamentally led to the creation of global supply chains. The spread of broadband in the 1990s led to the ability to do services abroad and outsource services abroad. Those things were going to happen and they happened anyway. With trade policy, where trade policy fits in is trade agreements are how you shape globalization. How you make sure that as globalization proceeds, it's done in a way that's consistent with your interests and your values. So we use trade negotiations to raise labor standards or environmental standards in other countries. to level the playing field on regulation. Uh, to make sure that countries are applying science and regulation rather than just protectionism. Um, and that's what you can get done through a, through a trade agreement. Having said all of that, you don't get to vote as a, as a voter on technology. You don't get to vote on, the, on robots or on the next generation of software. You don't really get to vote on globalization because it just happens. What you get to vote on are trade agreements and trade. And so trade becomes the scapegoat, the political scapegoat for quite legitimate underlying economic concerns. Concerns that fundamentally should be dealt with through strong domestic policy, which we really haven't had uh, in this country around uh, education, transition assistance, preparing people to live in a rapidly changing economy. 
We don't have a domestic policy agenda that does that well. And as a result, when there are tensions, when there are concerns about income inequality or, or, or uh, uh, lack of wage growth, uh, people tend to take it out on what they can take it out on, and that was trade. So you, you wouldn't say it's justified for administrations to say, we have to renegotiate certain trade agreements or start with trade wars because of some fundamental underlying reasons. So I, I'd separate that out a little bit. Every, there's always room for improvement. And every administration comes in, including the Obama administration, came in and said, we're going to renegotiate NAFTA, we're going to renegotiate the Korea, Colombia, Panama, uh, FTAs, and we did all that. Uh, the renegotiation of NAFTA, from our perspective, was the Trans-Pacific Partnership, because Canada and Mexico were part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and that was the mechanism that we, through which we were able to, to renegotiate NAFTA. So uh, the, the idea that one administration might come in and try and do better than the previous one, that I think is just a, 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 a natural part of American politics. You know, having, having said that, I think what is absolutely true from an economic point of view is that trade benefits everybody, certainly as a consumer, and it benefits an increasing share of our economy in terms of people producing and export-related industries. But the benefits are broadly shared and broadly dispersed. The costs of trade are acute and specific. This factory closing or that factory closing. And, and that's very visible while the benefits of trade are, are quite opaque. And that makes, that makes it difficult in, in a democratic political system to build support for trade because people rarely vote because trade agreements have made it easier for them to feed their family or to clothe their family or to buy the back-to-school materials at a reasonable price. They vote against trade because they know somebody who lost a job at a factory down the road. And so even though you know, the, the statistics are all there, so trade agreements have contributed about $14,000 per American family to their standard of living. Uh, there's just no doubt that it is positive in a macro sense, not just for the economy as a whole, but for families, and particularly low-income families that tend to spend a higher percentage of their disposable income on tradable products like clothing and food. Uh, those are, are areas where trade has really um, uh, managed to both get us more um, um, selection, but also lower prices. Uh, but that's the intensity of feeling about the positive elements of trade never match the intensity of feelings about the dislocation caused by trade, even though that's to a much smaller group. So you mentioned that every administration tends to come in and try to improve the trade system and enter agreements in their own ways. So. What's so different about President Trump's approach? Does, is his, his uh, underlying ideology different from previous administrations? Does he have some, some sort of fundamental agenda? You know, I'd say there are, are some continuities and some very significant differences. On the differences side, uh, I would point to, for lack of a better term, his America First perspective. For 75 years, we have defined American interests as being um, uh, pursued by creating a rules-based system where the rules reflect our interests and our values. And we were a leader in the creation of the global trading system, uh, as well as many other international uh, multilateral systems. And by showing that leadership, we managed to create systems that were in our interests. Um, this administration has come in with some different perspective about those multilateral systems and feel it's better not to be bound by a rules-based system, but instead every country should just go it alone. Sort of back to kind of a Hobbesian state of nature. And the problem is, is that uh, unlike 
50 years ago. We're not the, and we're still the largest economy in the world, but we're not the only major economy in the world. And now other countries can also close their economies. The European Union has become a much more unified market. Obviously, China, as well as other major emerging markets, play a more significant role in the global economy. And so we're not the only power on the block, and that creates a much more complicated situation. Interesting. So I guess when we talk about trade, and we, we, when we explain economic activities, we kind of tend to explain them in cycles. There's this business cycle. There's, so, so is there sort of a cycle for trade conflicts? Is it just like, as you said, each president comes in, they try to rebrand the system, reconstruct the rules, or are there some other fundamental factors that we might not I don't know. think we know yet because even as the Trump administration has revisited or stepped back from some fundamental elements around economic integration, other countries have continued to move forward. It's, uh, even with Brexit, oftentimes President Trump and Brexit are put in the same category in terms of the underlying sentiment. But we have to remember Brexit was not anti-trade. In fact, the pro-Brexit forces said they can negotiate better, more open, more liberal trade agreements if they weren't part of the European Union. Um, and, and meanwhile, Europe has moved ahead with negotiations and, and implementation of agreements with Canada, Japan, uh, Vietnam, Singapore, they're negotiating with Mexico, Australia, New Zealand, ASEAN, Mercosur. They're negotiating, they're continuing to negotiate. The Pacific Alliance countries, Mexico, uh, Chile, Peru, um, Colombia, they're continuing to integrate their economies and deepen their integration. Uh, in Africa, you have progress towards something called the continental-wide free trade agreement. So it's not that there is some global cycle that is anti-trade going on at the moment. I think, in fact, the U.S. is a little bit of an aberration in that regard because other countries are, in fact, doubling down on integration because they see that as so central to their interests. So I'm glad you brought up um, Brexit and how the contrast with certain other countries who move further into integration. But there's this opinion that basically says, you know, the vote for President Trump and the vote for Brexit isn't rejecting liberalism. They're, they're just reject, rejecting the globalizing part because they don't feel like they're being benefited. And that's why, even though they still believe in democracy and free markets and free election and human rights, they just think we should stop those at the border. And, and that's why we see the rise of populism, we, we see the rise of, of nationalism. But you don't think that those are a global trends, is that? Well, I think there are trends toward rising uh, populism, but I think populism is a more complicated um, phenomenon than purely economics and certainly than purely globalization. Um, I think, as I said in Brexit, there was resentment to the loss of sovereignty to Brussels. There was concern about immigrants, increasing immigration, not so much from uh, refugees from, from Africa or from the Middle East, but from Poland and Bulgaria and other parts of the, of the European uh, Union. Uh, we do see populism in, in growing in France, in the Netherlands, in Italy, uh, in Hungary, in Poland, um, and it's a serious issue. It's oftentimes focused on, on the other, on the immigrant, um, and on a sense of uh, more of a social sense and a cultural sense of a loss of control of one's society. People lamenting the fact that their community isn't the same as it used to be. But oftentimes that's quite disconnected from economics. You have the same people who are, are resenting immigrants who continue to want to integrate economically with their neighbors or to further that integration uh, or to go further than they've been able to go before in terms of, of 
globalization. And so I think it's important to sort of peel the onion a little bit and look at what's really under, underlying it. So you would say that even despite the challenges we've seen uh, in the past couple of years, globalization is still the solution. International cooperation is still the solution to a lot of the, the issues we have. And, and there is no doubt that due to globalization and due to international trade, that it has had the most significant impact on the alleviation of poverty in human history. You know, hundreds of millions of people, maybe more than a billion people, lifted out of poverty because of global integration. Um, now, that doesn't mean that globalization doesn't need to be changed or put some guardrails around or be supplemented by regulation. Uh, it's not that, that uh, free trade, you know, um, uh, is just free Uber all this. There needs to be fair trade as well. There needs to be a level playing field. We need to look at what are the labor and environmental standards of countries and do those create unfair advantages and things of that sort. So I think there's a lot of work to do to make globalization more fair uh, more progressive in many, in many respects. But the idea that somehow if you build up walls and you close your economy to trade, that that's a good thing for your economic well-being, that has been proven over and over again to be wrong. And if you just want to have a comparison, a historical comparison, look at the difference between what's happened in Asia and the impact that trade has had across Asia in terms of, of increasing the human development indicators across the board versus the Middle East, where countries right next to each other um, have very little trade, where there's very little integration between, from an economic perspective, uh, one Middle East country and another, and where we've seen almost no increase in human development indicators over the same period of time. You know, there's a, we have real data, and it doesn't have to be ideological. We can look at the data and say, here are two economic models, and they have quite different results. But, but I guess that looking ahead, looking forward, the goods that we trade today must be very different from what we used to trade. Like, for example, we see more technological developments, more information, uh, the more of sort of this sense of intangible goods that are being exported from developed countries, uh, whereas a lot of developing countries are still struggling to, to sort of catch up technologically. So I guess, how do you see the, the future of trade kind of shaping up? the impact of tech, the impact of, I guess, not just surpluses and, and deficits in, in conventional economic terms. Well, I, I think uh, you have both old-style trade and then, as you say, a lot of new, uh, new forms of trade. We're still trading a lot of agricultural products around the world, as we have for centuries. Um, we're still trading a lot of manufactured products around the world. What's changed in the last uh, 20 or 30 years has been the advent of services trade financial services, express delivery, electronic payment services, tourism, all of that has increased substantially over the last 20 years. And now you have the whole area of e-commerce, um, the flows of data across borders, and what that means for the trading system. And so the trading system needs to be constantly updated. And one, one reason why TPP was so important, and one of the areas of TPP that's now been imported into uh, the U.S.-Mexico-Canadian agreement by the Trump administration is with the whole area around the digital economy. That didn't exist when NAFTA or when the Uruguay round was negotiated. And so you need a whole set of new rules for making sure that we're not putting up new barriers in terms of localization requirements or discrimination um, when it comes to the digital economy as well. So you're speaking at a panel discussion tomorrow at, at Princeton's Griswold Center for Economic Policy Studies 
the panel's titled Tariff Wars and Peace. Since most of our listeners won't be able to get a chance to be there, would it be possible if you give us some of some of your ideas, some of the hints to your, to your thesis? We'd love to hear what you're about to, to talk about. Well, look, I, I think uh, um, I think I'll, I'll likely talk about both the continuity and change in trade policy. You know, there is a certain degree of continuity. Um, uh, one thing I find a bit ironic is um, NAFTA. President Trump has termed NAFTA to be the worst trade agreement in history. And he's talked about TPP, which I was involved in, right. as a calamitous trade policy. Yeah. Um, now the administration has taken NAFTA, they've amended it by adding most of TPP, right? and now it's a beautiful agreement. <laughs> you take the worst agreement in history and you add a calamitous agreement, you now have a beautiful agreement. Um, you know, what that shows is that, is that there are certain issues like the digital economy. Um, or intellectual property rights or others that need to be added to agreements to modernize them. Um, and whether it's one administration or another, you're likely to come down quite similar ways. On the flip side of that, I think what's going on in terms of weakening the World Trade Organization, the multilateral system, including its dispute settlement capability, is opening up a Pandora's box where every country does uh, its own thing. And you know, that can be quite dangerous. Um, if we put up tariffs, we really are going to face really three sets of costs. One is the cost of the tariffs themselves, makes products more expensive to our consumers or to the, the manufacturers who use imported products as inputs into the products that they produce and, and hopefully export. And we see that already. We see companies that are closing down in the United States because steel and aluminum is coming in under tariffs. It's too expensive for them to produce now in the United States. There's the cost of retaliation, which is the second cost where countries retaliate against our tariffs by putting tariffs on our exports. And we see that our farmers and ranchers are very much affected by that as markets are closed to them than used to be open. But I think the, the third cost is perhaps the most significant, the most pernicious, and that's the cost of imitation. That when other countries, when we lose our moral high ground, we've always had the moral high ground. The United States has never been perfect on trade, but we've been a lot better than most other countries in terms of living up to our obligations. We lose our moral high ground by no longer being able to say to other countries, you need to uphold your international obligations. We're opening the door to countries selectively uh, applying their international agreements. And that can be, it can affect trade, but it can affect a lot of other issues as well. You know, Japan recently announced that it's going to pull out of the whaling convention. The whaling was actually an issue we talked about in TPP, about how to strengthen disciplines on, on whaling. Would Japan have pulled out of the Whaling Convention if the U.S. had not also pulled out of TPP and the Iran Agreement and the Paris Accord, you know, and the INF Treaty, the Arms Control Treaty? I don't know. But you create a world in which countries can begin to make those judgments themselves as opposed to feeling under pressure to uphold their international obligations, and that's a whole different kind of international order. So in a way, President Trump is breaking up this multilateral international order and I guess he's trying to do more bilateral deals just between the U.S. and other countries and often ignore the WTO once and for all, and, and you think there's a lot of political cost to that. Well, there's nothing inherently wrong with bilateral deals. And I think there's a room for that. Um, I, I personally feel it's an inefficient way to negotiate. We were able to negotiate with 12 countries representing 40% of the, the global economy. Um, uh, I don't think we've seen anything like that kind of progress on a bilateral basis over the, over the, last, uh, um, over the last couple of, of years. 
Um, but again, there's some value in having consistency across multiple markets. You want as many countries as possible to uphold the same high standard in various areas. It makes it easier, particularly for small and medium-sized businesses, so they don't have to navigate different rules for, for different markets. Um, you know, but having said that, there's nothing inherently wrong with you know, a bilateral agreement. Yeah, after Brexit, conceivably, um, there'll be a desire to negotiate a bilateral agreement with, uh, with the UK, and that may, well, that may well make sense once we have a clear sense of what kind of trade policy the UK uh, we'll be able to have in a, in a post-Brexit uh, environment. I think it's, so it's not so much the difference between bilateral and plurilateral or multilateral. It's a question of whether you believe in the rules-based system, which means everybody lives by the same rules, including yourself. It means that sometimes that you are constrained from doing certain things, but it's worth it because you've constrained 164 other countries as well. Or whether you feel like you can do whatever you want whenever you want, and whether that opens the door to every other country doing the same. And us finding ourselves at odds with 164 other countries potentially as they take actions of protectionism of sort individually. But I guess there's also the opinion saying by breaking up the multilateral deals, President Trump would have more leverage against foul players that were breaking laws in, in the order, for example, like China, I guess he's really trying to impose, I mean, he was mentioning this word enforcement, enforcement recently, all about protecting intellectual property and everything, which I guess were a lot of American businesses' legitimate concerns. Do, do, right. do you see that as a valid justification of um, starting certain trade tensions with certain countries? Let me, let me break that up into two, two answers. One is I think um, there's nothing inherent about going bilateral in that regard. I mean, the, one of the dynamics of TPP, half the countries already had free trade with the United States. So we couldn't give them anything. We had nothing to give them. They already had free access to our market. But they all had difficulty getting access to Japan. And so the dynamic of TPP was we would help them get access to Japan and they would raise their standards in ways that we cared about. You can't do that on a bilateral basis. We couldn't go to Peru or go to Chile, both of whom had already free trade agreements with us and say, we'd like you to increase your intellectual property rights protection, your protection of investments, we'd like you to adopt all these digital economy standards, but we're not going to give you anything in return. So that's where enlarging the pie actually makes it easier, it gives you more leverage in a negotiation. That's a separate issue from China. I think when it comes to China, the, the, the concerns that the Trump administration expressed, I think most of the concerns are quite legitimate, and they're real, and they're concerns of the business community and previous administrations I've had it for some time and have, and have worked on for some time. I think the question will be whether, and, and there's no doubt that the president has gotten the attention of the Chinese leadership by raising tariffs. Um, now the question is, with that new leverage that he has, will he be able to pivot and actually use that leverage to reach an agreement? And there, there's only really two sets of issues. There's the shopping list issue. Will China agree to buy more of our stuff? Soybeans, liquefied natural gas, oil, airplanes, tractors, etc. Um, and then there are the issues around fundamental structural reforms of the Chinese economy and changes to their industrial policy, which is a much more complicated and difficult negotiation. And that's what they're now talking about is whether they can make progress on that as well. If we didn't have President Trump, if, if Hillary Clinton had become president or Bernie Sanders or Marco Rubio or someone else, 
uh, do you think they would have also gone after China for the, for those legitimate concerns? That I, think so. said? I think so. Yeah, no, would they have used tariffs in exactly the same way that President Trump has? Um, some may have, but others probably would not have. Uh, but I think there could be underlying, underlying concerns around China at our bipartisan um, support and a bipartisan concern. And, and now global, it's a global consensus around it that the Europeans and others have also um, uh, agree that these are some of the fundamental issues that have to be dealt with. It's, it's one of the biggest issues we face um, you know, globally, and I don't think we necessarily have a full answer to it yet, which is how do you accommodate a country as big and important as China that has a fundamentally different view of industrial policy and economic development than the rest of the world? And a view that sometimes comes at the expense of the rest of the world. Is the rest of the world going to enable that? Is it going to oppose it? Are we going to find ourselves disengaging from each other with China and, and going its direction and the West, for lack of a better term, going uh, another direction? Um, I mean, those are pretty big fundamental questions that are on the table right now, and I don't think we've yet really gotten our head around that. So, so I guess when you were the trade representative, did you also sort of spot those concerns already? What do you think oh, was yeah, a process absolutely. that was... Yeah, no, we had a somewhat different approach. Um, the reaction wasn't as strong, I feel like. Well, look, we brought 16 cases against the WTO, against China at the WTO. We right. won every case that came to conclusion. China changed its policy in response to those cases. We organized an international coalition of both developed and developing countries to put pressure on China to reduce excess capacity in areas like steel and aluminum. Um, we also uh, um, offered up, and this I think is quite important right now, we offered up the prospect of negotiating something called a bilateral investment treaty. And what's interesting about the bilateral investment treaty is that we're about 90% done with it the end of the administration and anticipated we were just going to hand it over to the next administration to, uh, to, to complete, but that was, uh, <laughs> that was uh, not to be had. But what was interesting is that a lot of the issues that we're now talking about were addressed in the bilateral investment treaty. So you had prohibitions on forced technology transfer. You had a whole series of commitments on intellectual property rights enforcement. You had disciplines on steel enterprises and subsidies. Many of those disciplines all came out of TPP, by the way, and were imported into the bilateral investment treaty. And so a lot of it is already there. What's important about that is, I mean, there was a very intense negotiation. Um, so every three weeks, our teams would block themselves in a, a room for five or six days and, and not come out. The China, what's important about that is that for the, for the Chinese delegation to be able to do that, they had gone through a very rigorous and difficult process internally and domestically to reach consensus that they can offer up those concessions. That's the hardest part of the negotiation you know, with China is their domestic politics, uh, not so much what happens at the table. And so the fact that China over that course of time had agreed internally that it could open up vast parts of its economy, you know, get rid of joint venture requirements or equity caps um, in vast parts of its economy. Uh, that's a very meaningful set of concessions that I hope the administration will take, pocket, and build on and go further if they can. But did you think that, would you say that uh, in terms of enforcement, in terms of actually alerting China, uh, President Trump's approach would actually be more forceful in terms 
was actually forcing China to, um, to come up with concessions in terms of structural, politically. We'll see. Uh, I mean, so far not. So far it hasn't had any effect yet, right? Uh, he's imposed tariffs. He's certainly gotten their attention. But we don't yet have an agreement, and we certainly haven't seen something that's been enforced. Um, in the bioinvestment treaty, we had two kinds of enforcement. Everything was binding and enforceable, both by state-to-state -state action like we had at the WTO, but also where a company that was operating in China could go to international neutral arbitration uh, against the Chinese government if its uh, obligations were, were, if it was violating its obligations. Um, this administration doesn't like either the WTO kind of dispute settlement, nor does it like the private international arbitration kinds of, of, of um, enforcement. And so it may have to rely on tariffs. And the question would be whether China will agree to a system where the U.S. can unilaterally impose tariffs when it decides whether or not China has violated its obligations. So you must have interacted with a lot of Chinese policymakers. And then how, how do you think of them, I guess, in terms of the interaction process? Do you, was, was there a lot of sense of disconnect between America and Chinese pol uh, the policymakers that sort of eventually led to all of those, not just ideological and, and political, but also in terms of trade and economics with conflicts? Um, do you think there's sort of a disconnect? Well, you know, I think, uh, first of all, they're highly professional. Um, they're you know, very hard working. They're good colleagues. Um, and I think they're really trying very hard to do what's best for their country. But they do come to the table with a very different perspective. I recall we were negotiating the uh, information technology agreement. And uh, I was trying to get advanced medical products onto the list. And I remember having a conversation with, uh, with a Chinese official um, where uh, um, he said, well, look, we have an aging population. We have a lot of sick people. Uh, we need to protect the sector so that we can create a domestic industry that can produce inexpensive medical equipment. I said, well, that's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is you could eliminate your barriers, you could import the best and cheapest equipment from around the world, and you could deliver better health outcomes to your people. You know, and, and that, was a, that was a foreign concept, that that was the way to look at how to address the health needs of your people. Um, the, the natural inclination was to say, protection, protect your market, close your market to, to competition, subsidize the domestic industry, take intellectual property rights or force technology transfer as necessary. And then when you have a strong industry, go out from China and become dominant as an exporter in that area, oftentimes by undercutting the competition. That's been their natural industrial policy to date, and that's just a very different view. And that was our interview with Ambassador Froman in Princeton's Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. Those were some truly wonderful insights, and I hope you have really gotten a sense of the U.S. trade policy and the future of global trade through this episode. I really think it's so timely to listen to Ambassador Froman's thought right now, especially when China and U.S. are finishing up those trade talks. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll continue the conversation with Ambassador Froman in a bit. And next episode, we're actually going to focus a little bit more about uh, Ambassador Froman's career, his interaction with President Obama, his thoughts on the future of globalization, and more. So for those of you who are listening, we'll come back next week with more questions for Ambassador Froman. Please follow us on PolicyPunchline.com and on other platforms like iTunes, Spotify, 
and including Twitter, which just made a Twitter account at Policy Punchline. Really hope you can join us again next week with more with Ambassador Froman. Thank you for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.